If there is any youth group in here, grade 6 through 12th, if you snuck in, we already, we already dismissed them. Uh, if you are in here, you're free to go head upstairs. Uh, they need a little bit longer time. Just want to quickly mention that. And also, just be praying for me. You probably already noticed my voice. Uh, <clears throat> fighting allergies right now. So uh, you can tell it's wavering already, which could be good for you. That means I may have to finish real early. Uh, yeah. A lot of love in here. This morning we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue through this letter written to the young church. We've seen uh, uh, previously as we've been diving through, going through this book, this written to this young church. Of course, it was a letter. Now it's a, we call it a book. It's in part of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to this young church in the Roman city of Thessalonica. And Again, we, we have to remember what we've looked for, and this is part four as we go through. It's not a series as we go through this book, but always remember, always keep in the back of your mind that it is a young church, right? And Paul's writing, as we've been seeing, to encourage and a lot of other things, uh, but he's writing to them, and they're in a city uh, that is very secular in nature, right? The Romans uh, own it. The Romans run it. Uh, they're being persecuted. They're being mocked, all these different things that are taking place as they have chosen to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So as we go through this book, I'm going to always try to remind you, you have to keep this in mind so you can keep it in context of what is taking place as Paul uh, writes to them, okay? So are you with me with that? So with that being said, I'm going to start this morning uh, by telling you a, a little short uh, story to hope set up uh, the direction we're going. <clears throat> in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey tells the following story as he rode the New York subway one Sunday morning. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene, wrote Covey. Then suddenly, then suddenly a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed on the train. Covey continued, the man sat down next to me and, and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing other people's newspapers. It was very disturbing, and yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. Covey goes on, on to acknowledge his feelings of irritation with the man, the children, and the whole situation. Finally, finally, Kobe, he, he turned to him, he turned to the father, he turned to him and he said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you could control them a little more. Well, Kobe, Kobe's question brought the man to what he called a consciousness of the situation. Oh, you're right, the father replied. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Covey goes on to describe the change that came over him. Suddenly, he says, I saw things differently. And because I saw things differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, I behaved differently. 
My irritation vanished. Feelings of sympathy and compassion began to flow freely. I saw things differently. I thought differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. In light of eternity, in light of eternity, our time here in this physical body is very short. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) In light of eternity, the time that we spend here, life is but a vapor, the Bible says. Here, now, and gone in an instant. In light of eternity, our time here in the physical body is short. 55.3 million people die each year. 151,600 people die each day. 6,316 people die each hour. 105 people die each minute. Ultimately, ultimately the death rate is one in one. It's going to happen. But the big question The big question for born-again disciples, born-again believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the big question is how many people die each year without ever hearing the gospel message? With this in mind, should we see things differently? Should we think differently? Feel differently? Should we behave differently? Maybe we would be a little less irritated with people who are living in the world without Jesus in their life when we rub up against them, right? Maybe we should allow sympathy and compassion to flow more freely for those who are living without Jesus. Now, I'm not one to believe that God, who is just, would send someone to spend eternity separated from him because they were not able to hear the gospel. I'm not one to believe that. I'm not one to believe that uh, be separated from God for all of eternity means that you're not going to be with God. And if you're with God, we understand the character of God is, is love, joy, peace, all those things. God is light. God is warm. With God, there is fellowship. And if, if you're not going to be with God in, in eternity, that means it's going to be just the opposite. You'll be away from God where there is no light, where there is no love, where there is no fellowship. It's called hell. I'm not one to believe. I know this is going to be contradictive with with some of you when I say this, but I'm not not one to believe that, that God who is just would send someone to spend eternity separated from him because they were not able to hear the gospel. I believe the Bible makes this clear. I believe that God is not stupid or wasteful. I don't, I don't believe that. Oh, you, you can't come in because you never had an opportunity to hear about Jesus, so you can't come into heaven. Sorry, go away. Does that sound like the God of the Bible? People are held, I believe people are held accountable for what they know. How much light has a person been able to see in terms of the gospel message? Whatever that is, that is what they are held accountable for. And I've shared this with many of you before. Uh, I've shared with you that years ago, years ago, I, I had enough inclination within myself to understand, okay, there, there is a God and, and, and maybe Jesus is real and, and that's as far as I'm going to go. Because if I believe that much, when I get to heaven, I can say, yeah, I believed in Jesus. But all this other stuff, how to live my life and, you know, be holy and all, I, I didn't know anything about that. So you can't hold me accountable. 
In other words, I was saying, hey, okay, I'll believe in a God, but I want to live the way I want to live. Doesn't the Bible say even the demons believe, but yet shudder? So it's not a matter of just believing, is it? And as I said in the first service, God must have a real sense of humor. He says, now you're going to be a pastor. But let me explain a little more. How can someone, let me, let me just explain this. How can someone believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins if they've never heard about it? Romans chapter 10, 14 says, how shall they believe in him who they have never heard? Some would say it doesn't matter. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Yes, he is the way, the truth, and the light, and no one comes to the Father except through him. If you've heard of him. Okay, listen to me. Those who have heard about Jesus have been shown the light of the world and they are without excuse. Without excuse. I'm talking about those who have never heard. Now, please understand, we serve a just, as I said, we serve a just, loving God. God doesn't expect people to respond to something they've never heard. But... But he does hold us accountable for what we have heard. This idea is, is seen in Romans chapter 5, 13. Sin is not taken into account when the, where there is no law. If a person cannot respond to the good news of Jesus dying on their behalf because they haven't heard the good news, what are they accountable for? I believe according to the Bible, they are accountable for what is in their hearts. Only God knows the heart of everyone. This is seen in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It reads this way. Indeed, when Gentiles, non-Jews, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. God can have compassion and mercy on whomever he chooses according to what they have heard, okay? We can trust that he will judge in a matter consistent with his holiness and love. Understand this, you are not God There is a God. God has it all figured out. He's a holy, just, loving God. And I really believe in all my heart, he will look at each circumstance where people have not heard about him and he will make the final judgment according to what they have done on the consciousness of their heart by the law that is written on their heart. How can people that live deep in the Amazon jungle that have never had any outside uh, touch from the world still know and understand that murder and stealing and all those things are wrong because it's written on their hearts. And I believe God will judge them to according to how they've handled those because they have not heard. Now you may disagree with me, but this is where I want us to go. In light of those things, it would be better, right? It would be better if everybody heard The gospel message, right? It would be better. 
If everyone heard and our marching orders as born-again disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ is to go in all the world and share the gospel, to evangelize. As I said last week, we are all evangelists. So all can hear. Now back in the late, probably mid-80s, late-80s, and through the 90s, there was a popular evangelistic course. It was called EE, Evangelism Explosion. How many of you have ever heard of it? A few of you. How many of you have ever taken the course? EE, Evangelism Explosion. It, it involved two questions to, to launch you into, into a discussion about Jesus. You would take this course, and, and this is the, the handout. You would have to learn all these cards to take this course. There's like 40 of them. And it's an outline of the EE. You would take this course. It would, you would take it, I forget how many weeks. You would meet each week. And, and at first, you would learn some basics. You would learn these questions I'm going to share. And then you would, you would begin. You would go out in groups of three. You would go to what we call the safe house. You would go to somebody that belonged to the church. You would go there, and you would share the gospel because you knew it was a safe place. You were more relaxed. And then pretty soon, as, as the course went on, and you learned more and more of the outline, you would go, you would get a, a first-time guest card and you would go to their house, you would knock on their door and, and go right in. And, and well, sometimes you'd go right in. You would go in and you would, share, you would share these two questions that would launch you into the gospel message. By the end of the course, you were going around neighborhoods knocking on doors. And you would start, you would start this, this evangelistic, uh, this evangelistic question, hopefully to share the gospel. You would start it with these two questions. Some of you may have heard these questions before and didn't know that it was coming from this outline. You would start out by, you would knock on the door or wherever you were at, and they would answer the door, and you'd say, hi, how you doing? I'm so-and-so. I'm just uh, in the neighborhood, and I just uh, just stop, stop by, see how you're doing. You'd let them say a few things, and you'd say, you know what, uh, can, uh, can I ask you a question? And most of the time, they, they would say yes. Sometimes not, but they would say, yeah. And you would say, have you come to the place in your life where you know that if you died, you would go to heaven? Sometimes the door closed right away. People would answer that question and you would just politely listen, knowing that it's not really a wrong or right answer you're looking for. You just want to get their mind thinking. So they would answer that question and then you would say, you would say something like, you know, that is really great. Uh, I got another question for you. And you would say, if, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than then the neighbor across the street, I'm better than so-and-so. I, I, I think he'd let me in because I'm a pretty good person. And you would say, you know what, that's great. That is a great answer. Uh, you know, but you would begin to dive into this whole outline. The answer you were looking for, of course, is, you know, if God asked me that question, I would say I've done absolutely nothing but believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I have no reason to be able to come into heaven other than what Jesus did for me. That's the answer. We can all be pretty good people, right? We can work, 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 and hopefully God's seeing all the work, work, work. And, and when we get there, we can say, look at all I did for you. And he may say, did you know Jesus? No, I didn't. Then the work doesn't matter. So evangelism, it's very important, and we're all evangelists. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to see Paul give a course on evangelism. 
It's not as long as this. But he's going to give a course, and it, I believe it's a course. It's something that each and every one of us can really take in today. It's, it's simple. You can take it in, and you can keep it. Uh, the name of this course, I'm calling it EE2. I'm calling it Effective Evangelism, even though this is very effective. I'm not saying it wasn't, but Effective Evangelism made up of this acronym, MRA. If you're going to take notes, MRA is the acronym we're going to look at. Easy to remember. We're going to dive into that in just a second. Let's pray before we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Father, we're thankful that we can be here today as a body of Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given us something to do while we wait for your return, to share the gospel message, to see lives change. Lord, thank you for changing my life. Thank you for changing the lives of people here today. It's all because of you. We give you glory for that. Touch our hearts, Lord. Still our minds. Help us to focus on what you have for us today. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be reading all the way through verse 12. Where we're going to start with uh, 1 through 6. So if you hold your place in your Bible, uh, your app, whatever you're using, we'll be coming back to it. So Paul starts out. Again, he's writing to this young church. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure, okay? Despite what they're being mocked for and all the things they're being told, and because they had to leave quickly, as we've seen before, it was not a failure. He's, he's reminding them, it is not. He said, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our who? God. <laughs> With the help of our God, God's always there, right? With the help of our God, our God, our God, we dared to tell you his gospel. So we dared to tell you in spite of strong opposition. God's, Paul's basically telling him right there, he's a great big God. In spite of what was going on, he, we dared to tell you and the gospel is being told and people are accepting it. Verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. There's the whole heart thing. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. So first part of our effective evangelism course is about the letter M, and it stands for motive. Motive. Now, of course, we should always check our motives before doing anything in life, right? Always. Is our motive right? Always should do that. But when it comes to evangelism, sharing the gospel, the message of hope, we need to make sure, just like Paul, that our motives are right. Now, can somebody go around from church to church or around country to country and share the gospel message with the wrong motives? Can anybody do that? Yeah, they do. A lot of people do. And most of the time when their motives are wrong, it's purely about profit, right? So there can be a wrong motive. So we want to make sure our motives are right. 
We should not be trying to please people around us. It's not about making people happy when we're sharing the gospel message. In fact, if you're truly sharing the gospel message, you're gonna probably upset more people than you're gonna make happy. Amen? I shared this with, with the first service. If you don't believe me, go over to the mall this afternoon and walk up and down the halls and walk up to people and tell them you wanna, you wanna talk about Jesus and see how that goes for you. It may go well, probably not with everybody, maybe with somebody, maybe God has a divine appointment for you, but more than likely, people are gonna shun you, curse you, spit on you, who knows? Please hear me this morning. Sharing the gospel message is not about how loud you can pray so people can see Right, it's, it's not about that, using all these great, wonderful words and praying as loud as you can. Oh, look at that, look at that brother or sister in the Lord. Look, look at their prayer language. Look how loud they can pray, right? It's, it's not about that, even though prayer is great. It's not about showcasing your spiritual gift. It's not about bragging about the number of people you may win to the Lord. If, if I have learned anything over the years about church growth, it is this. Are you ready? This is what I've learned. Church is not about numbers. It is not about numbers. I don't get hung up with numbers. I don't, I don't go every day at, at the end of Sunday, I don't go and have a place written down where I track numbers of people who are in church. If I was going to track anything, it would be the empty chairs in church because we want people to come and hear the gospel message. It's not about numbers. It's not about that. Yes, a healthy church is a growing church. So don't get me wrong. We, we want to grow because we're reaching people. A healthy church is a growing church. An unhealthy church is a us for no more. Don't come in the door. Okay. That's not healthy. That's not reaching people. Reaching people is a, if you're reaching people as a body of Christ, you're a growing church, but it's not about counting numbers. Look, oh man, uh, I, I can't wait to have a board meeting next week with the board and sit down and tell the board, man, look at how many people are coming to the church now. We have thousands of people coming. Isn't that exciting? It may be exciting to a point, but this is what should excite us Church is about people, okay? People that we're all a person. We all have a name. We all have a story. We're here because we're people. We're not here because you can be counted as a number. We're not about numbers. It's about people. It's about relationships. We're going to dive into that in a minute. It's about seeing people come to know Jesus and to grow deeper with Jesus, See, so it's not about playing church either. So it's about you coming as the body of Christ, coming each week. You know Jesus, you've accepted Jesus, you've asked him into your life, you've asked him to forgive your sins. Now you're coming to church to build relationships and to grow your relationship with Christ, to draw closer to Christ, to grow deeper in your faith, to be sanctified. It's a big word, right? Sanctification, it means becoming like Jesus Christ, who is perfect. That is your bullseye. That's what you're aiming for. You're not going to attain it. 
But that's what you're aiming for. But you can get closer and closer to him. You can get rid of more sin, more things out of your life as you draw closer and closer to him. I hate to tell you this, but you will sin because you're going to have some wicked thought. You're going to do something you shouldn't have done. Uh, Right? Things happen. But hopefully you're not the same person you were when you accepted Christ not too long ago or years ago. If you're the same person, we're going to dive into that, then there's a problem. Many of you will remember that about five years ago now, I had to have my thymus gland removed. That required my chest, thymus gland is in your chest, that required them to to cut open my chest and and the whole nine yards. I have wire in my chest now. Any of you that ever had open heart surgery, you know what I'm talking about. I belong to the zipper club. (laughs) I didn't have to get a tattoo either, it's real. It required my chest to be split open in three days in the ICU. Some of you said that my preaching changed after that event. Before my surgery, before they knew what the mass was, I had this mass in my chest and my thymus gland, and you know, that can be a scary thing. By the way, my mother-in-law was dying of terminal cancer, uh, thymus cancer. So when they told me I had a mass on my thymus and we're dealing with Cindy's mom and that happened, you can imagine how my wife felt, right? So all this has happened, how do you remember that? So before they knew what the mass was on my chest, which praise the Lord, it turned out not to be anything. I cried out to God. I remember the day very clearly. I was in my car and I was driving and I was contemplating everything that was going to take place, what was in my chest. My sister died of kidney cancer. You know, is this cancer? Is this my time? And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't scared of dying. I really am over that. I'm not scared. I know where I'm going. I 100%. I'm, I'm confident. And it, it wasn't a, a matter of, uh, of anything other than uh, I, I cried. Let me just tell you what I, I remember. I cried out to the Lord. I had tears in my eye and everything. I said, Jesus, I want my life to matter. I want my life to matter. Lord, I want to make a difference for eternity. Lord, Lord, I just want my life to matter. And how will it matter? It won't matter by how big my house is or how many cars I have, how much money I have in my bank account, because I can't take any of that with me, can I? What matters is who you build relationships with and who you get to take to heaven with you, right? It's their decision. I get it. You don't get to take them, but it's who you share the message with. You see, relationships matter. So we got to get it right here. We got to get better at relationships here because that's the only thing we're going to take. It's the only thing we're going to recognize when we get to heaven is our relationships. Nothing else. No U-Hauls. No nothing. Just you and the people you know. So I want, I said, Jesus, I want my life to matter. I want to do my best to share the gospel message with as many people as possible to see people come to know you. Please understand that was my motive all along as a minister, but this event in my life caused me to put it all into perspective. And that's the change you see for me. I want my life to matter. And not here for eternity. 
You see, our passion, our motive should always be about sharing the gospel and helping people find Jesus. Like Paul, we do not need to use trickery or flattery, just our love and concern, our pure motives. And the motive is eternity matters, love matters. That's what he's telling these, this young church. Motive. Turn back with me now to 1 Thessalonians, part two of our course in, evangel- in effective evangelism. Chapter six, or excuse me, verse six. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, right? We could have been a burden to you. We could have come. We could have just been really religious. We could have come. We could have just went from house to house, just mooching off of everybody, couch surfing, you know, not really doing anything for anybody other than just preaching, going about our day. You know, that's what they could have done, right? But they didn't. We could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring, caring for her little children. We love you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, which in and of itself is good enough, right? They're putting it all out there. They're sharing the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Second part of effective evangelism, our course this morning, is about the letter R for relationships. Not only did Paul share the gospel, he shared his life as well. Sharing the message of Jesus was not a job. Okay? It was his calling, but it wasn't his job, right? He's like, look, I'm here. I'm here to share it all with you. He shared his life, the good times and the bad. He was real. He was real. Now I'm going to share something with you guys this morning. I shared it with the, with the early service, and I feel like I can share it again here. I have, as your pastor, I have been criticized. Of 13 years I've lived in Idaho Falls, I've been criticized by people in our very community, mostly from uh, the, the Christian community, from believers in our community, for not being more pastoral. I don't really know what that means. I have an idea what, what, what that means, what uh, people think I should be like. I think that means I come to church on Sunday and I'm one way, and then when I go home, I can be another way. In other words, to be pastoral, there's, there's a book on pastoral ethics that I took years ago. And in that book written back in the day, it actually said to be pastoral, if you have the day off and you're at home working on your car and you're getting all greasy and dirty and you need a part for the car and you got to go to the auto parts store or whatever, that you're supposed to go get cleaned up, take a shower, put your nice clothes on to go get that part because you have to be pastoral. Don't let people see you being real. They teach this. I don't know how not to be real. 
You guys hear me stick my foot in my mouth every week? I know some of you agree with me, you disagree with the things I say, but hopefully it challenges you. I'm challenged each week. Do you think, do you think these messages, do you think our messages, I go to Walmart every week and go down the message aisle and get a sermon? <laughs> Boy, there's some weeks I wish I could. You pray, you read, you study, you talk with God, you let guide and lead so you can, you can bring a message. And I'm saying all that because I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm growing because we all wanna learn and grow. You see, I'm relational. And I think if you're gonna be relational, you're gonna be real. And I think you're gonna say and do things that may hurt people sometimes, not with intent, right? Because I'm a person too, we're all, we're all people, we're all on a journey and I'm relational. See, you, with me, you, you get what you get. If you don't like it, then you can get. <laughs> I wrote that, by the way. Yeah, I thought it was pretty creative. I don't see anybody walking out, so we're good. <laughs> but see, it, I'm joking, but it's, it's just relationships. It's about being authentic. It's, it's about being real. It's about being the body of Christ. It's about being, hey, how are you doing today, Chris? And Chris says, you know, uh, he could say, uh, I, I think everything's going fine with him, but he could say, you know, everything's great. It's perfect. Went fishing yesterday, caught all these fish, but really deep down inside, you know, his kids caught all the fish and he caught nothing and he's miserable. So he, you know, he could just say everything's great, but if he's going to be real, he's going to say, you know what? I'm not doing too well. I'm not a good fisherman. My kids are kicking my butt and I don't like it. <laughs> but see, and that's, that's very cliches, very, very surface, but to be real means that when somebody walks up to you and you're, you're having a bad day and, and they're a brother and sister in the Lord and you can be real and you can say, they say, how you doing? You know, things aren't really going well. Do you have a minute? And you say, yeah, we're going to dive into that in a second, but, and you listen and, and you pray with them and you say, I'm going to be praying for you. And, and, and you know, we pray with them. It's being relational, it's being real. That's what the body of Christ is. It's not about us getting up on a Sunday morning and putting on the best Christian person you can be. Today I'm Mr. and Mrs. Christian, but when I leave, I'm Mr. Real who I am. It's about being real all the time. By show of hands, you want me to be more pastoral? Because I have suits. No. I can do. Th I can be pastoral. I think. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't. I'm not sure what that means. With all that being said, this is what I'm trying to say. Church is not about religion. What is religion defined in the Bible? Religion defined in the Bible is taking care of the widows and orphans. That's what true religion is. It doesn't say true religion is putting on your best suit or tie and, and doing A, B, and C, right? It says in James, true religion is taking care of the widows and the orphans. It's serving others. That's what true religion is. So if you want to be religious, take care of people. 
build a relationship with people. Church is not about religion. It's about relationship, relationship with Jesus and with others. Paul came out of religion, right? Paul came out of religion. He was a religious man. He was hell-bent on destroying the sect, the Christians, the way, right? And then he had a, a, he had a Damascus Road experience where he had a relationship with Jesus, and it changed everything. You know, I, I shared this uh, at the first service. I, I'm going to share it again. I think it's okay, but Sunday morning, it's about, it's, it's about relationship with me, okay? It, it truly is. It's always about people first. I'm not perfect at it. I know I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to get better. I'm always trying to get better, but it's about people. So Sunday morning, I get up at five. I spend an hour in prayer. I have my prayer time, my devotion time in the Bible. That has nothing to do with my message. I spend time with God. I pray. And I'm not telling you this to pat myself on, your, on my back. I'm telling you what I do, what my routine is. I guess this is my pastoral side. So I get up, I read, I pray. And then after an hour or so, then I, I get out my notes and I, I go through them as I'm praying, Lord, show me. Uh, and I just, I just make sure everything feels good, what I'm supposed to do. One morning I got up and Lord, I don't, said, I don't want you to preach that. Open the Bible. This is what you're gonna talk about. That's happened before. So I get up and I, and I pray and then I, I get ready. Uh, thankfully, I take a shower, amen. I get ready and I come, I, come to, I come to church and whatever we need to do around here. And then I, you know, I go in my office, finish getting dressed and ready to go. And then I'm in the foyer or somewhere. Now, please hear me. I'm not against pastors going in their back office or going somewhere to pray with the saints. I, I love prayer. I have no problem with that. If that's what God's called somebody to do before they go out and preach, that's what they need to do. That's what God's called them to do. And I'm not criticizing that one bit. Okay, but my game plan is what God's called me to do is to reach people like you, love on people, build relationships with people. So he said, young man, you get up early and pray and read and get ready. And then when you go to the church, you be about my business. You be about meeting people. You see, that's building relationships. And that's what God's called me to do for many, many years. That's what he's called us all to do, build relationships. See, people need to know you care before they open up to hear what you have to say, right? Become a good listener. I believe that is one of the key to great relationships. The older I get, the more I understand that to be true. The key, you want to have the best relationship you can have with your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, whatever, friends, the best relationship you can have, you become the best listener in the world. The best listener. If you want to know more about it, this is the greatest book I've ever read. I read this book 20-some years ago, and I'm reading it again. I'm, I, this book will teach you. It's called Between the Words, The Art of Perceptive Listening by Dr. Norman Wakefield. He's a Christian believer. It's a great book. If you want to really tune in your listening skills and get better at it, read this. No, I don't get any kickback from the book. You want good relationships? Become a, a great listener. 
Let's turn back one more time to 1 Thessalonians, part three of our course in effective evangelism. It says this in verse 10, you are witnesses, they're watching, they're seeing, they saw, whatever you want to fill in there. You are witnesses, and so is God, God's always watching, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So the third part of Effective Evangelism course is about the letter A, and it stands for action. So you have motive, relationship, and now you have action. Okay, we must put our faith into action for all to see, to be witnessed by those around us. Are you, with, are you with me? What do people witness? Sorry, I have to get some water. My throat's going. You may get out of here sooner than you think. We must put our faith into action for all to see, to be witnessed by those around us. Paul said it, to be holy, righteous, and blameless. To rise above everybody else in the world and snub them. Is that what that means? Ultimately, you could, because if you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you are a co-heir of the kingdom of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. If you wanted to do that, you could, but you wouldn't be very effective in drawing others to the Lord, would you? Holy, righteous, and blameless, it means to be set apart from the world, to be in the world, not of the world. We no longer engage. This means we no longer engage in the sinful lifestyle we knew before we became born-again disciples of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. We no longer engage in the sinful lifestyle we knew before we became born-again disciples of Jesus. That means we're changed. That means we repent. We turn. We go the other way. Again, it doesn't mean we're perfect, but you can't claim to be a born-again disciple of Jesus that came out of some uh, great uh, sin, sinful lifestyle and say, like I said earlier, as I was telling a little bit of my testimony, to say, yes, I accept Jesus in my heart. Uh, I, I love Jesus, all those things, but I don't really need to change. That's not being set apart, is it? That's saying you believe just like the demons believe and shudder in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't change. Again, we're not perfect. We're going to sin. We're going to have sinful thoughts. But it doesn't mean we stay in that state. We're always progressing, becoming more like Christ. If you call yourself a Christian but don't look much different from the world around you, you may be just playing church. I'm going to tell you like it is. You look good on Sunday, but the rest of the week, it ain't so good. You see, your actions speak louder than you think. People witness, people watch. Next, as Paul pointed out, your faith and action should be witnessed uh, by our encouraging and comforting. How many of you love to be around 
uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord that are just great comforters and encouragers. When you're, when you're going through something tough, you can't wait to get to church. You want to praise Jesus and thank him. But you know that brother and sister in the Lord, they're the great comforter and encourager. The Holy Spirit's in them. They have that gift of hospitality and all those things. And you just want to get around them because you, you want it to rub off. You want them to encourage you and pray with you, right? Uh, or you can get around somebody uh, or you might get around somebody that is just a big pessimist. God may help you, I guess, maybe, he might, I don't know. You know, a pessimist, a person who goes through life full of doubt, nothing but doom and gloom lie ahead. Yes, Jesus loves you, but the wrath of God is coming. It's coming for those that don't love him. Now, I know years ago before I became a believer, I was definitely a pessimist, right? If you, guys would have, I, if you guys would have known me before I became a believer, you wouldn't believe that I am the same person. There is a God. Any of my friends and family that knew me before a believer can look at me and go, there is a God because nothing else could change that guy. There is a God. And he's done the same in many of your lives. Our faith and action should be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all these, of course, are fruit of the Holy Spirit living in us. That's the action that comes out of us as we grow to be sanctified as we grow to be more like Christ, as the Holy Spirit fills us more and more, that faith and action, those are what people should see coming out of us. It is the ultimate faith in action. As we get ready to close and the worship team comes comes back, I want to say that this is Paul's effective evangelism course to this young church in Thessalonica. And it is a course that you and I can work with, with our family, our friends, and our coworkers. It's that simple, church. Just remember, M-R-A, not N-R-A or A-A-R-P or whatever. (laughs) M-R-A. Lord, how, how can I be a better evangelist? And yes, you are an evangelist. You may not stand in front of a crowd of thousands or whatever, but you are still an evangelist. You still need to check your motives. You still need to build relationships. You still need to have your faith in action, right? Because people are watching. MRA, motives keep it purely about Jesus. That's your motive. If you keep it purely about Jesus... You keep eternity in perspective. Eternity matters. Love matters. It's about Jesus. Relationships, keep, keep them real. Be authentic with people. Listen, if people know you're a Christian and you get yourself tangled up in something and you say or do something you shouldn't have done, you know what? Own it. Be real. Say, you know what? You just saw me do, I'm a believer, you know, I shouldn't have said or done that, and, you know, God just really spoke to me. Will you please forgive me for doing that? Be real. If you do something like that, 
That's going to get their attention. Because you're going to mess up, but don't try to shuffle away and, and run from it. Just own it. Action. Keep it in faith motion. Keep it in faith motion. Set apart. Doing what called, God's called us to do. Ultimately, church, it's all about you and I looking to the Son, looking to Jesus. You see, He has set us free, and we hope and pray and desire the same freedom to be known to everyone. Anybody in here been set free? Anybody in here been set free? Let's clap if you've been set free. I know you, you may be still dealing with something in your life, but you've been set free. I was set free. Man, was I set free. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you for setting me free. Now, Jesus, I want my life to matter and I want to see others set free by the power of the living God. Lord, help me to have my motives right. Help me to build relationships. Help me to have action to keep my faith in motion for others to see. Would you stand with me this morning? I felt uh, as I was walking down the Walmart aisle buying this sermon. <laughs> I felt that, you know, that's a good sermon that we should close with a song. I felt, felt the Lord was saying, you know, we, we need to finish on a really upbeat today, almost like you're coming out of a, a locker room, you know, pep rally before you go play the big game because you're about ready to step out and play the big game, right? Yeah. Right, you are. It's, you, you are... You are the team. You are the only team. You're God's plan A. There's no other plan. God called us, sent his son. He told us that we are called as believers to share the message. So you are it. So you're about ready to step out of the locker room, so to speak, into the world, set apart. Your motives are right, right? You're ready to build those relationships you already have. And you're going to put your faith in action, and you're going to step forward. So we need to go out on, a, on this upbeat song because at Jesus, it's all about looking to the Son, looking to Jesus to empower us. So we're going to close. We're going to sing this song, and I pray you can sing it with all your heart. Allow God just to speak to you of who's in your life that you can go and just really start to dive in deep, build that relationship. They see your motives are right, that you love them, and they just see something in you that they desire in their own life. And then I'm going to close in prayer. Pastor Daniel, will you lead us?